One of the saddest stories from the annals of church history happened in October 1529, almost 500 years ago. We were speaking about it just a few short weeks ago in Christian Foundations. Protestant Reformation had been underway for about 10 years. In the wake of Martin Luther's boldness in the face of almost certain death, the gospel of God's grace had spread rapidly from Germany into the cantons of Switzerland and beyond. But in spite of all the gains the Reformation had made in a very short period of time, the leaders of the Reformation remained divided over one critical issue. The way in which Jesus Christ was present with his church in the Lord's Supper. On the one hand was Martin Luther and his followers in Germany who believed that Christ was somehow physically present in, with, and under the elements of the Supper. On the other side of this debate were the Reformed Christians in Switzerland under the leadership of Ulrich Zwingli who interpreted the phrase, this is my body, in a figurative and metaphorical sense. Unlike Luther and the Roman Catholic Church, Zwingli denied that Christ was physically present in the supper and he affirmed instead that the elements were symbols that represent the body and the blood of Christ but do not contain them. And so in a nutshell, those were the two views on the Lord's Supper during the early years of the Reformation. Now, though it might seem a bit strange from our modern vantage point, the Lord's Supper was by far the most controversial doctrine during those early years of the Protestant movement. Well, in an effort to unite the two sides of this doctrinal debate, a meeting was called in the city of Marburg in 1529, where Zwingli and Luther met face-to-face along with a few other influential pastors. The meeting began on a sour note as Martin Luther entered the room and with a piece of chalk wrote on the board these words, This is my body, as though the debate were already settled. Over the next few days, the German and the Swiss Protestants were able to agree on 14 points of Christian doctrine. But in spite of much teaching and discussion around the table, they were unable to come to agreement on the 15th point relating to the Lord's Supper. And as the conference reached an impasse and Zwingli tearfully pleaded with Luther to relent and regard the Swiss Protestants as his brothers in Christ, Luther stared at him indignantly, refusing to extend the right hand of fellowship and declared the Swiss brothers across the table, your spirit is different than ours. Harsh, unfortunate words from the great Martin Luther. And so on that fateful day in 1529, two of the greatest theologians in the history of the church parted ways never to speak again on this earth or to enjoy fellowship with one another. Although I'm comforted to know that today they are reconciled together in heaven. You know, as strange, as counterintuitive as it may sound, the Lord's Supper has always been a point of controversy and division among Christians And this morning, we're going to see how this was true even during the lifetime of Paul and the apostles as we open God's Word and read together 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. And I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of the Lord. You know, many times already in our study through this epistle to the Corinthians, we've seen how important it is to understand the context and the culture into which Paul and the apostles ministered. And this morning, as we look in detail at Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper, it will be very helpful for us to understand the cultural backdrop against which this inspired chapter was written. In almost every Christian church and every Christian denomination today, the Lord's Supper is an integral part of our corporate worship gatherings. Some churches gather around the Lord's table every Sunday. Others, like us, gather around the table once a month, perhaps even less frequently than that. Different churches, different denominations differ on how often we prefer to observe the Lord's table, but in general, almost all of us agree we should celebrate the supper in direct connection with our corporate gatherings on the Lord's day. Now, it may surprise you to know that this was not so much the pattern in the earliest years of the Christian church. The Lord's Supper was often celebrated in private homes and in combination with an actual meal was enjoyed around an actual table. And so we read way back in Acts 2, shortly after the day of Pentecost and the founding of the Christian church, that day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. This earliest description of Christian worship from Acts 2 indicates the first believers observe communion not every quarter, not every month, Not even every week. 
They observed it every day as they met together for worship in the temple, as they ate in their private homes, devoting themselves, as the text says a few verses earlier, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Descriptions of worship in the book of Acts emphasize the intimate and frequent table fellowship these believers enjoyed, the way they were willing to make tremendous sacrifices for one another, opening up their homes, even selling their possessions so that the church family was provided for, so that nobody was left in need. Celebration of the Lord's table did not start in the chancels of the great European cathedrals, but in private homes around actual dinner tables. Perhaps this shouldn't come as much of a, of a surprise to us since we know the Jewish Passover was also celebrated in homes and that it was celebrated as part of a full family meal. As the Church of Christ grew in those formative years after Pentecost as it spread outward from Jerusalem into Corinth and other Gentile territories, the Jewish tradition of celebrating the supper as part of a full meal was maintained. It was probably even introduced to the Corinthians by the Apostle Paul himself. And in time, this practice of enjoying a communal meal came to be known as the agape, or the love feast. It was the way the Lord's Supper was observed in the early decades of the church's existence. It continued to be a dominant practice for the next 350 years. Normally held in the evening at a separate time from the preaching service, and probably held at least one time each week, the believers would gather together at a designated location for a potluck meal perhaps through a network of house churches. That's interesting. The potluck goes right back to the early church. It's a Christian institution. Everyone in the congregation who had the financial means to do so was required to bring enough food to share with the congregation and especially with the poor brethren who did not always have the financial means to provide a good and healthy meal for themselves. The love feast was therefore not merely a time of fellowship. It was not merely a time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was also an opportunity for the church family to express their love and concern for the poor people among them and to meet practical needs within the church fellowship. And even today in our modern churches, it is not unusual to collect a benevolent offering on the week we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we still strive to do here at Rosedale Baptist considering the needs of those among us who may be going through a difficult time and also considering the one who became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich with every spiritual blessing. Whenever the church celebrated the Lord's Supper in the first century, the elders would consecrate and distribute the symbolic bread at the beginning of the meal, after which the believers would eat and drink the potluck dinner together, sharing whatever food they had brought with them. Then at the end of the meal, a cup would be filled with wine, would be passed around the table as Christians reflected thankfully upon the cross of Christ and remembered the blood that had been poured out for them. Almost certainly, this meal known as the agape is the cultural and historical backdrop to the chapter we're looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians. Now, in principle, there is nothing at all wrong with the agape as it was originally practiced. In principle, there would be nothing wrong with us returning to that practice in our modern-day churches. Sadly, as we all know, sin in the human heart has a way of twisting, a way of distorting things that are good and beautiful. And this is what happened to the agape in the early church. 
Although this communal meal certainly began with good intentions, it did not take long for a time of fellowship and charity to descend into something that was anything but Christian and anything but glorifying to Jesus Christ. Here in Corinth, we get a little glimpse into some of the abuses that had crept into the celebration of the Lord's table. And we know from other ancient sources, these same kind of things were happening in many other churches and that they continued to plague the Christian church right up until the 5th century when these communal meals were, were officially ruled against by two different church councils and were formally brought to an end. Now tragically, a meal that was designed to foster unity in the church, charity within the fellowship, had become a meal that was creating division between those in the church who were rich and those in the church who were poor. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul tells us some of the specific things that were causing so much trouble in Corinth and undermining the whole meaning and significance of the supper. In verse 21, we learn, for example, that in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Now what that means, friends, is that some of the church members in Corinth were not willing to wait for their brothers and sisters to arrive at the dinner table before they started to chow down. Some of the wealthy church members who either didn't have to work during the day, who had the privilege of picking and choosing the hours they worked, were not willing to delay dinner time for the sake of the slaves and the day laborers who had no choice but to work into the early hours of the evening. As a result of their impatient, their self-centeredness, the poor would arrive at the dinner table at the end of an exhausting workday and there would not be enough food left on the table even to satisfy their hunger. Now, maybe we'd be inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to these wealthy church members that they were just hungry. They were just being a little inconsiderate. But Paul's language in verses 17 to 22 strongly suggests that these actions were intentional. They were intentionally excluding their poor brothers. They were intentionally establishing class divisions and distinctions within the church. Although to some degree we still have class distinctions in Canadian society, those distinctions were very, very prominent in the ancient Greek and Roman world. We know from ancient sources that food was one way that economic distinctions were emphasized and maintained in that society. Today, if you're invited to go to a party or a banquet or a wedding, everyone gets the same amount of food on their plate no matter who they are, no matter how much money they make. But back in the first century, if you went to a banquet, you would always be able to tell who the VIPs were by what was on their plate, by how much of it was on their plate. The wealthiest guests at a banquet were honored with the best quality food, with the finest wine, with the largest portions, while less important guests were given less food in every possible sense. You see, food in the first century was a way of making social distinctions. And it was a way of distinguishing the rich from the poor, the somebodies from the nobodies. Although those kind of boundary markers have no place in the Christian church where all of us are one in Christ, worldly wisdom, sinful pride had entered into the fellowship and it had renewed class distinctions between the haves and the have-nots. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in verse 22, the poor members of the Corinthian church were being humiliated. They were being treated in a way that was totally unacceptable, totally ungodly. 
This is precisely the same kind of behavior James warns about in the second chapter of his epistle, where he writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and says, Oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, Well, you go stand over there. You sit here at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's what was happening in the church of Corinth. This was the main problem that Paul needs to address around the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Poor Christians were being humiliated and dehumanized by wealthy Christians. It's very obvious in this chapter that there were other problems at work in these meetings as well. One of the other abuses that was surrounding these Corinthian love feasts was the fact that eating and drinking had become more important to the Christians than the celebration of the Lord's Supper itself. As a result, the primary reason they were gathering together was to fill their empty bellies, to have a good old time, and not to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ had made for their sins. And if this were not enough... Paul tells us in verse 21, some of the church people were refilling their cups a few too many times and were actually getting hammered during the communion service. Is it any wonder that Paul is so disturbed, that he's so disgusted at their behavior, that he writes to these Christians in such a sharp and rebuking tone? Chapter 11 started off with an encouraging compliment for the Corinthians, but now there's nothing positive left to say. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. No, I can't say that I recall a pastor ever telling their congregation that it would be better for them to stay at home than to come to corporate worship services, and I've certainly never said anything like that here at Rosedale. But that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians in verse 17. You guys are worse off coming to church than if you had just stayed at home. You know, it actually reminds me a lot of that passage we read earlier, a passage I preached on a few years ago in the book of Malachi, where God speaks through His prophet and tells the Israelites, Oh, that there was someone among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. When the Israelites of old were bringing their half-hearted, half-baked worship, were treating God with blatant disrespect, He told them that the best thing they could possibly do is to shut the door of the temple so that no one could profane His holy name any longer. Both 1 Corinthians, the book of Malachi, remind us, worship is not a game. Our corporate gatherings around the Word of God, around the table of the Lord, are not unimportant things to our God. They are extremely important to God. And as a result, they ought to be extremely important to us. You guys would be better off staying at home, Paul says. If this is the way that you are going to treat holy things, if this is the way you are going to treat holy people, your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to fill your empty belly, if you want to act like a glutton and a drunkard, stay at home. 
Eat in your own dining room. But don't bring that kind of behavior and debauchery into the place of worship and then try to pass it off as something that is sacred to God. These Corinthians were totally duped. They were convinced they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, these agape meals. But Paul tells them straight up in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you are, that you eat. Don't let appearances deceive you, Paul says. You can call this meal whatever you want to call it. You can break some bread if you want. You can pass around a cup of wine if you want. You can play church if you want. But whatever this meeting is, it ain't the Lord's Supper. That's the essence of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. It is a sharp word of rebuke to people who thought they were worshiping the Lord when in fact they were doing precisely the opposite. They were despising the church of God. They were humiliating those who have nothing. And just as God once spoke to the Israelites through Malachi, so now He speaks through the Apostle Paul with that same tone. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. What's particularly stunning about this account of human disobedience is not how the Apostle Paul responds to the Corinthians, but how God has already responded in judgment to their sacrilegious worship. Have a look a little further down the page, verse 27 to 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. You know, when we Christians begin to wander off the path of obedience, God is our loving Father in heaven and guides us back to the trail with His firm hand of discipline. But in the case of the Corinthians, God's discipline came down on the church in a way that is shocking. It's startling. Because according to this text, God chose to deal with these abuses of worship through sickness, through death. Just as Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead when they lied to the Holy Spirit, so some of the Corinthians were struck dead. They were afflicted with illness in order to demonstrate just how seriously God takes worship around this table and how seriously we need to take it whenever we gather around this table as a church family. Although we need to be very careful not to conclude as Christians that every sickness we go through in this life is some form of discipline or punishment from God. This passage in 1 Corinthians shows us God can and God does at times use sickness and even death as a form of discipline in order to get the church's attention and to get us back on the right path. And perhaps in the case of these disobedient men and women of Corinth, death was a merciful alternative to a life lived in rebellion against God. What a stunning, what a sobering rebuke for the church of Corinth. What an important reminder for every modern congregation that is tempted to play fast and loose with holy things or to turn the true worship of God into a profaning of His name and a profaning of His people. In response to a sobering text like this one, we ought to call to mind the words of the inspired psalmist who understood the holiness of God, the importance of worshiping Him rightly. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Here in the opening verses of this chapter, Paul has been severely chastising the church of Corinth for making a mockery out of the Lord's table. But now that he has pointed out some of the abuses, Paul is going to turn to a more constructive task for the remaining remainder of the chapter in establishing a theology of the Lord's Supper that is rooted in the teaching of Jesus himself and then by giving us practical instructions about how we should approach the table and partake of this meal. Have another look with me at verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, The Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper saying, This cup is a new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In an effort to get the Corinthians back on the right path, Paul reminds them of Christ's word in the upper room on the night he was betrayed by Judas. Words that were later written down in the New Testament Gospels. Words that will be very familiar to all of us as Christians. We've heard these words many, many times. But in order to understand their significance, we need to go back to the Old Testament and the book of Exodus and the ministry of Moses. At the time when Moses was born, Israel had been languishing in slavery for centuries. And in their great distress, they cried out to God and God remembered His covenant promise to Abraham and He raised up a deliverer. At the age of 80, Moses was given his marching orders. He was called by God to deliver a message to the Pharaoh, let my people go. And through Moses and his brother Aaron, God performed many miraculous deeds in Egypt. He sent horrible plagues upon the land, which only served to harden the Pharaoh's heart to increase his rebellion against God and his guilt before God. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to free the Israelites from slavery, and so God sent one final plague upon Egypt, which was the most devastating of all, the death of the firstborn child in every family. Moses warned Pharaoh what would happen if he did not repent. And when Pharaoh refused to comply, Moses passed along instructions to God's people so that they would be spared this terrible act of judgment. In Exodus 12, we learn that God instructed every Jewish family to kill a lamb, to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost of their house. They were told to make preparations to leave Egypt the following day, to make bread without yeast because there was no time to let it rise. Each family had to gather within the house behind the blood-stained doorpost to eat the lamb that had been killed, not letting any of it go to waste. And when the death angel passed through the land of Egypt that night, God promised He would not harm any person within the house. The death angel would see the blood on the doorpost. He would pass over the house. But on any house that did not have the mark of blood, the firstborn of the family would be killed. That's the story of the Exodus. The final meal the people ate in Egypt before God delivered them is the origins of what we know today as the Passover. And every year to this day, the Passover meal is celebrated by Jewish families all around the world. The story of God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt is passed down from one generation to the next. 
is a commemoration of God's great act of salvation in the Old Testament, delivering His covenant people from slavery. Now perhaps to our modern Western eyes, the origins of Passover seem strange, gruesome, maybe a bit offensive. The thought of animal sacrifice, the thought of putting the blood of an animal on the doorpost seems so foreign to our culture and worldview. But as we will see, this commandment regarding the blood of the Lamb was not arbitrary, was not unnecessary. It was a type, it was a shadow pointing towards something greater to come in the future when the ultimate sacrifice would be offered for our sin in order to secure our deliverance and to save us from an eternity in hell. The sacrifice of the Lamb, the blood on the doorpost, was a picture of how offensive sin is to God, what it would cost God in order to rescue us from that sin. We've got to wrap our minds around this, friends. The main idea behind Passover is the concept of substitution. One life that is being given in the place of another life. The innocent being sacrificed for the guilty. Because as the Scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. According to God's Word, every one of us has sinned against a holy God, rebelling against His law, and because of that, we are all without exception born into this world, spiritually dead, separated from the Creator, infected with a disease called original sin that we inherited from our first parents, and guilty of all the actual sins that we've all committed. And if this disease of sin is not dealt with by God, if a substitute is not provided who can stand in our place, it will eventually result in eternal separation from God in a horrific place of torment called hell with no possibility of escape, no possibility of a relationship with the Creator. An eternal hell is the ultimate consequence of sin, and because of that, we are helpless slaves in desperate need of God's deliverance. We are just like the Israelites so long ago. We are under the tyranny of a harsh oppressor. We are unable to save ourselves apart from divine intervention. The blood of the Passover lamb that was painted over the doorpost of every Jewish house contains a message not only for the Jewish people living in Egypt, but for all of us here today, indeed for every person on planet earth. If we are to be delivered from our bondage to sin, if we are to be brought into a right relationship with the God who created us, someone must pay the death penalty in our place. Someone must die as our substitute in our place, in our sin, for our sins so that the righteous wrath of God will be turned away. And during that first Passover meal in Egypt, a spotless lamb died in the place of the firstborn child, one life substituted for another life. That is the symbolism of Passover. That is the reason why God required each and every Jewish family to kill a spotless lamb and to put the blood on the doorpost. And so God said to them in Exodus 12, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, that little lesson on the Passover brings us to the institution of the Lord's Supper in verse 23 and 24. Very familiar words that we repeat every time we come to this table as a church family. For the Christian believer living on this side of Calvary's cross, there is no Passover meal other than the one we call the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper. 
the Eucharist. And while we certainly respect and love our Jewish friends who continue to celebrate the Passover according to the Old Testament custom, we also recognize as Christians this ancient ritual is altogether inadequate now that the true Passover lamb has come, now that the true sacrifice for sin to end all other sacrifices has been offered. The book of Hebrews makes this very clear in chapter 10 where the author tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, friends, the Passover meal the exodus from Egypt, the blood over the doorpost, the millions of animals that died in the temple altar were all types and shadows that pointed forward in God's redemptive plan to a greater fulfillment. And now that the reality has come in the person and work of Christ, the shadows of the old covenant have passed away. The Passover meal served its purpose within the structure of the old covenant, but now that the Messiah has come, it has been replaced by something far better. Something that pictures the new and the better covenant that Jesus came to mediate with His new covenant people, Jews and Gentiles together in one covenant body called the church. In the upper room, Jesus was doing something with the Passover elements that had never before been done in history. He was applying those elements of bread and wine to His own body, to His own death on the cross, where His body would be offered and His blood would be poured out One sacrifice to end all sacrifices. One sacrifice in the heavenly temple that would do what millions of sacrifices in the earthly temple never could. And when Jesus broke the unleavened bread that night in the upper room, He reinterpreted its significance by saying, this is My body, which is for you. Now, of course, we don't believe here at Rosedale that Jesus meant that the bread physically becomes His body in some kind of magical or mystical way, but rather that the bread represents His body. The bread is a symbol of His body. And I'd hope that that would be obvious since Jesus was actually physically standing there holding the bread in His hands when He said those words. In the upper room, there was a clear distinction between the body of Christ and the bread that was being broken and eaten. And there is still a clear distinction between those two things today. But in any case, after dinner, Jesus did the same thing with the wine as He did with the bread, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Jesus is speaking about the new covenant that Jeremiah and the prophets predicted years earlier. A covenant of grace that would usher in a new age of the Holy Spirit. The full inclusion of Gentiles alongside the Jews. And every time that we, God's new covenant people, gather around the Lord's table to break bread, to drink from the cup, we are reminded of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are reminded of the salvation God has provided so fully and so freely in spite of our sinful and stubborn rebellion. We are reminded of the sovereign grace of God that chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and pulled us out of the miry pit of sin. We are reminded of the death of Christ. We're reminded of the price that was paid so that we could be forgiven. The sinless and spotless Lamb of God who became our sin substitute, dying in our place, enduring the wrath of God the Father so that you and I who believe in Him 
would not die eternally. Little phrase there in verse 25. The new covenant in my blood is very important. This is a phrase that calls to mind what Moses said, what Moses did way back in Exodus 24. You may remember that when Moses mediated God's covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai and gave them the law, he took some blood from an animal and he threw it out on the people, calling it the blood of the covenant. And the sprinkling of that blood by Moses was in fact a warning to Israel against infidelity to God. It was a warning that the consequence of breaking God's covenant and God's law was death. And we see the outworkings of that covenant breaking over and over in Israel's history. But here in 1 Corinthians, we have the Lord Jesus doing something different. Here we have the Lord Jesus calling His own blood the blood of the covenant. When Jesus Christ went to the cross on the following day, when He suffered and died on that cross, He took all of the covenant cursing upon Himself for the sake of His chosen ones. And on the cross, Jesus died as the sin substitute for anyone and for everyone who would ever believe in Him. He endured divine wrath so that we as people would not have to stand under God's righteous judgment. That is what we call to mind when we approach the Lord's table. That is what we remember when we partake of the elements. We are proclaiming to one another. We are remembering as a church family the death of the Lord Jesus. Whatever else might be happening in the communion service, one thing is certain. The Lord's table is a table of remembrance. For the Lord Himself said we are to do this in remembrance of Him. This table in front of us is a memorial table. And part of the reason we're instructed to come regularly to this table is so that we will never lose the wonder of the cross, so we will never take lightly what the Lord Jesus has done for us. No, I think all Christians in every denomination agree that the Lord's table serves as a memorial of the cross, but God's Word seems to indicate that it is, it is even more than this. For if we flip back a chapter to chapter 10, verse 16, we read these words about the Lord's Supper. Chapter 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Some translations will say communion in the blood of Christ. One reason why we call the table communion sometimes. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's no doubt that Paul saw the Lord's table as a memorial of Christ's death, but in chapter 10, Paul seems to go further than that when he uses this language of communion and participation. When he writes that when we partake of the consecrated bread and wine, we are actually communing with Christ. We are participating in His very body and blood. Now, as you can probably imagine, this idea of communion and participation in Christ's body and blood has been interpreted in a number of different ways. During the Reformation era, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church affirmed there is a physical participation of Christ's body and blood in the Supper. Roman Catholic Church taught back then and teaches today that when the priest says the words of consecration during the Mass, the bread and the wine actually transform mystically into the body and the blood of Christ while continuing to look on the outside like ordinary bread and wine. 
Now, Martin Luther came to deny this medieval doctrine of the church, but he maintained a strong belief that the physical body of Christ is indeed present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. And so Lutheran and Catholic Christians interpret this idea of participation very literally, even physically. But as I said earlier on, this understanding of the supper is impossible since the Lord was standing there physically in the upper room with the bread and the cup in His hands. Well, against this very physical and literal understanding of the supper was the interpretation put forward by Zwingli during the Reformation, a position that is held today by most Mennonites and by many Baptists. To participate or to commune with Christ's body and blood simply means that we remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Nothing more, nothing less. For many, if not for most evangelicals in the free church tradition, the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a memorial meal that reminds us of the body and blood of Christ that was given on the cross. But in between these two opposite positions is a third position that was put forward by John Calvin, a view that is held by many believers in the Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed churches, and indeed a view that is held by many Baptists, including this Baptist. On one side of the coin, Calvin's understanding of the supper denies that Christ's body and blood can be physically present in the communion elements since the Scriptures tell us that Christ's physical body is located in heaven, that Christ will not be physically present with us until He returns at a future date. This position agrees with Zwingli and our Mennonite friends that the bread and wine are symbols of Christ's body and blood and that our Lord Jesus was speaking in a figurative sense when He said to His disciples, this is My body and this is My blood. But unlike Zwingli, who thought the Lord's Supper was a memorial and nothing more, Calvin affirmed that there is more going on than meets the eye. There is a real spiritual participation in the body and blood of Christ. According to this point of view, Whenever we take communion, whenever we partake of the elements, not only are we doing something by remembering Christ's death, God is also doing something through the elements that will benefit us, that will serve to strengthen and nourish our faith, just as physical bread and wine strengthen and nourish the physical body. When it comes to the Lord's table, this is the position that I take. I agree with many of our friends in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches. The word participation in 1 Corinthians 10 implies far more than the act of of remembering. Now you can agree or disagree with me on that if you want. But I truly believe the Lord's table involves a real spiritual participation with the risen and exalted Christ. That the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ in a special way whenever we gather around the Lord's table and partake of the symbolic elements. The Lord's table, we've learned, is a divine institution. It is the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. It is a symbol that speaks about Christ's death. It's a memorial that helps us to remember. It is a real spiritual participation in Christ's body and blood. And then finally, we should not forget the Lord's table is a symbol of our unity as Christian believers. That is true even though sadly this table has often divided the Christian church as we have struggled to understand what it really means and how we should observe it in the right way. Once again, looking back at chapter 10, verse 17, Paul writes, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Brothers and sisters, whenever we gather around this table, we are not only to remember the body of Christ, which was once nailed to Calvary's cross, we are also to remember the body of Christ, which is present right here in this room. Our brothers and sisters who are members of that body, extensions of Christ's body here on planet Earth. In verse 29 of chapter 11, Paul says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, of course, it's possible that Paul is saying there we should be careful not to eat and drink the elements without carefully considering their symbolic meaning. And although that's undoubtedly true, that's important to remember, I have a notion that Paul is saying something different in that verse. To discern the body may well mean that we are to carefully consider our relationships with one another in the church body and to make sure that we are in a right relationship with one another before we eat the elements and make a public and visible statement about our relationship with Christ. Because, friends, the truth of the matter is that it's impossible to be in a right relationship with God if we are acting sinfully towards one another. This is one reason we must always examine ourselves before we come to the table. As Paul tells us in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and eat and drink of the, of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Whenever we come to this table, we need to examine ourselves to make sure we are rightly discerning the body. In other words, that we are in a right relationship with our Christian brothers and sisters. That was the great scandal of the Corinthians. People were coming to the table in such a manner that they were humiliating and disrespecting one another. You know, at times we too can come to the table. We too can partake of these elements when there is sin. There is bitterness. There is resentment. There is unforgiveness in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. That same principle can be applied to the Lord's table. Examining our relationships within the church body, making sure there are no unresolved conflicts, and if necessary, making things right before we come to this table, before we partake of the elements. Perhaps the main lesson we can take away from this chapter is that God cares deeply about how we believers treat one another with his, in His family. God expects us to be kind, tender-hearted towards one another, Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. We need to examine our relationships when we come to this table, but we need also need to examine our own hearts to make sure there are no sins that we are harboring, refusing to forsake, to turn away from. If there is unrepentant sin in your life, you are refusing to let go it would be far better for you to let the symbolic elements of bread and juice to pass by than to take those elements and to eat and drink judgment upon yourself, inviting into your own life the kind of discipline that Paul describes in verse 30. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we need to be sinless before we come to the table, but it does mean we need to be willing to deal with our sin. We need to be willing to fight against our sin through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And I hope it goes without saying, the Lord's table is a meal reserved for members of God's family who have been born again by God's Spirit. Because the true symbolism in this meal applies only to those who have received the forgiveness and regenerating grace of God. 
just a couple minutes, we are going to respond to this teaching from God's Word by celebrating the Lord's table together. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, I want you to know this morning that we're delighted to have you here with us. And I hope and I pray that this visible proclamation of the Christian gospel will drive home the truth of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life can be yours today if you will only turn away from your sin, if you will only embrace Jesus Christ alone by grace through faith. This time I'm going to invite the men to come forward as we prepare to celebrate this special meal that God has given to us.